Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Good morning. This morning I would like to really welcome uh, a special guest I'm very glad to have on and hope to have him on perhaps many times in the future. And my guest is David Bernstein, who is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, the former CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, and the author of Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. David, welcome to Chai FM. It's great to be with you. David, it's very, it's very opposite because, um, and we'll come to that, we'll, because the uh, governing party, the African National Congress, is very much at the, for South African Jews, is at the center of that very alliance of uh, progressives and, and the Muslim world, but uh, with, a, with a couple of little twists to it. And I'd like to ask you, because I remember having or watching a video with James Lindsay a couple of years ago, and he said that, and he was quite emotional when he said this, he said that the natural consequence of woke ideology is genocide. Would you agree with that, or do you think he's overstating the case? Yeah, well, I do think that there are variants of woke ideology, some of which might have more genocidal potential than others. There's sort of the most extreme sentiment that you'll see in sort of decolonial ideology or post-colonial ideology, this idea that um, that the global north is dominating the global south, which explains all the problems experienced by the global south. The ideologues involved in that movement tend to be extremely radical. They're extremely anti-Zionist. They tend to be, quote unquote, liberatory. So they're trying to overthrow the Enlightenment Western order. Um, and I do think that if those people ever saw power, they would use it in a very, very aggressive genocidal way. There's sort of a softer version of this ideology that still draws on the oppressor-oppressor narrative that is popular in corporations and institutions and so forth. It means well, but it doesn't realize often that it is using the same ideological framework that extremists are using. And so, um, and it, over time, it tends to devolve into something more aggressive, whether that's, is that really genocidal? Well, I mean, many of these people are sort of trying to reconcile themselves to a market economy. They're, they're trying to, they're trying to integrate a, this ideology into sort of um, a broader Western framework. Now, I think that they're wrong and I think it's damaging and I think it undercuts society. So in the sense that it might make society less democratic, less protective of a broad range of viewpoints. Sure, anything can happen. It can be a meltdown that might lead eventually to genocide. But I, I do think the most extreme versions of this, which are not sidelined, which are not marginalized, these are these are very potent forces in education and universities and the like, that that is something to worry about. One gets impression from reactions, um, well, certainly here and one from the variety of information I've sort of been exposed to from from the US is that there is an element both there, there is an element that really doesn't appear and it might fit under this category, but really doesn't appear to have any concerns that genocidal language is, is being used. And it means that in order to decolonize Palestine, uh, you they have to, you know, they have no qualms about whether Israel ceases to exist as a result. Uh, is there any way through these people or are these the people one has to not even worry about aiming at because you're just never going to, you're never going to, you're never going to persuade them otherwise? 
Yeah. Yeah. They're not our target audience um, because they are, these are hardened ideologues. Anybody on October 8th, who's going to send around a hang glider meme on Instagram is somebody beyond the pale and somebody we shouldn't spend a lot of time trying to reach. That doesn't mean we're not going to try to sideline them. We should. We should make sure that they have no access to our institutions, to our children and the like. But um, but that doesn't mean that we should try to bring them along. We're not going to bring them along. They, their fundamental worldview is at odds with our own. And, um, and so I think the, the goal is to isolate them in a way to show that they're a minority perspective. And they are a minority perspective, at least in the U.S. and most of the Western world. They're a minority perspective. They're not, they're not dominant. You see this all the time. I'll give you a few examples of this. A group of 90 Jewish professors sent a letter to the governor of California urging him to buy into this decolonizing anti-Zionist perspective in the education arena. And we, we just, we sent out Another letter that we signed, we got Jewish professors signed that was signed by about quadruple the number of professors than the original letter. Um, <laughs> and, and you see this over and over again. I call this expanding the scope of the referendum. That is mm-hmm. that when, when, when the, when it, it sounds, these people sound like they're representing a majoritarian perspective in their own eco chambers. But as soon as you expose them to a broader range of perspectives, you see how, how, minority they actually are. Um, you saw this when these four university presidents went before U.S. Congress to defend their positions and the like, and how crazy they appeared to the average American, how crazy they appeared to everyone else but besides themselves, besides their own campus communities. Just to pick up on that, because it's, it's very tempting, is the impression one has, and, and I've had for a while, is that as is almost as is normal, the corporate sector takes a very long time to come on board. I mean, it looked like Bill Ackman got educated in a way he had never anticipated, and his comments that he wrote about sort of being exposed to woke ideology in, in all its glory, uh, you did have a feeling of, well, you know, where have you been for the last decade or so? And and that's and that's been part of our problem. But I've also had a sense that. That might have made a fundamental change, and if you can change where the money's coming from, then you can then you can effect real change. Yeah, successful social movements welcome latecomers. The gay rights movement in the United States, same-sex marriage movement, which was a fabulously successful movement in a very short period of time. The dominant view was. Even if you're a latecomer, even if you have been previously homophobic, but now you've come to see how uh, how important gay marriages or gay rights are, welcome aboard. And I think mm. that has to be our attitude here as well. There are latecomers, and I'm happy that they've seen a, a better way forward. Um, Bill Ackman is a very powerful voice in all this. Um, mm. I want him to stay a powerful voice. Sometimes I worry that he might be getting a little off track. Um, you know, he's very, this can, this, the culture wars can be, uh, mentally distorting in a way uh, very quickly if you're not careful because people are so vicious in the way that they, they talk. And, um, and so somebody with, um, almost unlimited wealth, um, has to be very careful because, uh, because they have the ability to do things that the average person doesn't. That said, I'm, Delighted that he's part of this picture. I'm thrilled that there are other wealthy 
uh, individuals who are coming in and are going to start using some of that leverage. A, a lot of times liberals like me, by, by that I mean classical liberals like me who believe in the free expression of ideas and the like, we tend to wince at the use of power because power itself can be illiberal. But if we're going to protect ourselves against the imposition of these outside forces that are trying, or these uh, woke forces that are trying to shut down the conversation. We have to use power ourselves to counterbalance it. And so that's why I welcome Ackman, even if there are times when I think he might be overstepping his bounds a bit. I think that's a very corporate sector um, possibility that we, we experience that here as well. Um, it's, 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 it's sort of little knowledge being a dangerous thing, but I am, can I pick up on exactly sort of goes a bit to the issue of power, and that is the the way that the Jewish community, in, in all its various parts, and you have many parts. We've only got forty five thousand Jews in this country, so we're a bit short of parts. Um, the majority are, in to use the parlance, who keeps going around, good Jews, and we've got a small minority that's very vocal, that's virtually anti-Semitic. Um, the mm-hmm. Jews for, for peace in Palestine, yeah. etc. Same as you, but it's a very small minority. Our our vast majority is sort of commonplace Orthodox Jewish. And mm-hmm. uh, so in a way, we've passed a little bit ahead of this curve, but the article you, I think you wrote, it was a tablet, you wrote about the need for the for Jewish voices to be much more assertive, much less apologetic, um, much less accommodating of the need to somehow save the face of the other side. And that's something the, the South African Jewish community has almost had to get into since uh, 2001, the Durban conference, and we don't wield nearly enough power. And I, I was really delighted to see you write that because I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the, you know, if you're going to hit back at the bully, get a little aggressive yourself and, and they'll tend to cower back. Yeah, I, I no, I appreciate that. Is America coming to that view sufficiently? Yeah, well, that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, as we say in the states. Um, first, of that essay, by the way, was in Superior Journal. I just wanted to. Oh, make sorry, clear. Superior. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. getting my variety of sources confused. They're they're similar in in tone in nature. Um, so, you know, the the thing about the U.S. Jewish community is it's it's a victim of its own success. It's mm-hmm. a community that over time has become in a way, incumbent. You know, since the Six-Day War in 1967, American Jews have exercised power and have managed to w- work their way into the halls of power in many ways. That doesn't mean we have unlimited power, as the anti-Semite might imagine, but we've, we've been able to be influential in many circles of power in the U.S., and um, that means that we have something to lose. Um, the other thing about the, that's distinct about the American Jewish experience is um, our relationship with the civil rights movement and the progressive left. American Jews have mostly seen their lot tied to that of the larger civil rights movement of the 1960s. Unfortunately, the civil rights movement of the 1960s is not the civil rights movement today. What happened in the late 1960s is the black power movement became sort of the dominant voice and that's never really changed so yes there are NAACP and Urban League and these are some of the original organizations but they themselves have moved more in the direction of sort of the populist black power voice of the day so we're not dealing with the same NAACP that in in many places in some places we are in many places as we were 20 30 40 years ago so I think American Jews are sort of addicted to their own positioning in the in the power structure and don't want to do say anything that will lose their positioning or endanger the relationships with many of their historic allies. And I think that's the psychological 
threshold that needs to be crossed is mm-hmm. that, it, you know, as soon as they start thinking about sounding different, saying something different, um, being more aggressive, they start to factor in how that will play in other communities and they back down and they, they sort of revert back into their pre-October 7th posture. And I think that's dangerous. And I think that um, we're going to have to keep on pressing this and taking this to the American Jewish establishment, um, because the lessons of October 7th require us to rethink our positioning in American society. And that means alienating some of the people that we've known for a long time. You know, one of the big issues today, for example, is diversity, equity and inclusion in DEI. And it's coming um, under fire and should come under fire. It's a it's an ideological framework. Um, and it's not about just diversity, inclusion, and equity, or any of the any combination thereof. And um, and but if we criticize that, our traditional civil rights partners won't like it. If we don't criticize it, we become part of the established DEI framework. We're going to be reinforcing an ideology that that promulgates anti-Semitism and promulgates illiberalism in society, which then in turn leads to even more anti-Semitism. So I think um, we have to reposition ourselves in that way. And we have to say, look, we have to take our, our, our hits here. And that means we're not going to support an ideological framework that promulgates anti-Semitism and illiberalism in society, even if some of our historic partners think that's the right thing to do. And uh, that's going to be a huge psychological shift for many American Jews. Yeah, because I see that arising from the Claudine Gay scandal, that some people are talking about position, you know, the way to resolve some of it is to, to the, the anti-Semitism is to somehow get the, get Jews positioned on the hierarchy of victimhood. Yes. Um, that is crazy for all the reasons you, you, you've just given. Is it too soon to tell whether one will be able to sideline that and actually Get a proper dialogue going about what the issues really are, or we get, or, or is 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 American society too sucked into, or those those that have the influence too sucked into the idea that DEI is is what it's sort of purports to be, as opposed to what it really is, which is the opposite of either diverse. And it's certainly not, uh, there's certainly not a lot of compassion in it. No, there's not at all. The, I, look, I think most Americans up until recently, perhaps, uh, had no clue what DEI was. They might have heard the term. We have polling on this that shows this, by the way. It's very clear that they, people use the term and they're like, oh, that sounds okay to me. I like diversity and inclusion and all that. Why, you know, I want to be included. But, but when, but so they don't really understand the bureaucracy. I think that's changing with what's happened at Harvard and Princeton and some of these other elite schools and people are starting to say, oh, that's what this is. Yeah, I don't like that at all. So I, I think that, um, that, you know, we can negatively brand, uh, DEI. You know, there's also a possibility that it can be changed in certain places, although I'm, I'm worried that it will fail, that such change efforts will fail. Um, a, a black, woman professor, political scientist at Harvard um, named Danielle Allen, brilliant woman, had um, was part of a, a diversity, equity, inclusion effort at Harvard that tried to um, that tried to institute a pluralistic liberal version of DEI that also um, took into account viewpoint diversity and religious diversity and so forth and um, and was trying very hard to avoid the ideological traps in the current form of DEI. And after the uh, murder of George Floyd in um, the summer of 2020, that all fell by the wayside and this more radical form of DEI came into existence. Um, she was, by the way, interestingly, a candidate 
for the president of Harvard's uh, job and lost out to Claudine Gay. Maybe she'll be the next president. Who knows? Um, so I so I think that there are moderate versions out there. They're on the shelf. One, if you were a corporation and wanted to do moderate DEI, pluralistic DEI, you could find a DEI provider, but they're they're few and far between. It's not the mm-hmm. dominant form. So the two the two choices to get, uh, that are in front of us today, in, in my view, are not do, do should Jews try to get the Jewish narrative into the hierarchy of oppressions, as you put it. Uh, they shouldn't, in my view. That's a mistake. Um, the question is, should we try to oppose it outright and say DEI is just bad and should end everywhere? Or should we try to help transform it into something more cooperative, more about our common humanity? And I think we probably could try to do both of those things at the same time, depending on where. I think the, the thing that worries me about just the retention of DEI from a linguistic point of view is that the, the part of what's I suppose really worrying about the whole movement is that it is the inversion of language. And uh, we're all much better off if we use language we can all understand yes. to convey our words. Um, yes. So, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that is a problem. I mean, you know, obviously it's diversity, but not diversity of viewpoints. It's equity, which no one seems to know what me- it means. But if you take Ibram X. Kendi, who's the, you know, American. Uh, author, popular author who really coined the term in the DEI context, which means almost perfect representation of every minority by virtue of their numbers, then you're going to be in trouble and that's going to lead to all kinds of problems. Um, if, if inclusion means making sure that we have multiple voices around the table, I'm all in, but it tends to mean we're going to include only those marginalized voices and everybody else will have to sort of give space. And again, it's a very damaging social model that um that america that these american institutions have bought into and it's a trojan horse because it uses this language as you're suggesting that sounds good to the to the thoughtful person's ear but in fact is used to impose an ideological framework on on people and as soon as they're in it they realize that maybe they didn't buy into what they thought they had so i think we've got to push back against that very hard and if it morphs into something else that's true to diversity true to equity true to inclusion then then we can accept it can i just ask your view on the extent to which the the sort of progressive idea has taken root in parts of Israeli society. I mean, I have to say that I saw an interview with one a woman who comes from one of the besieged kibbutzim, and she very sort of quietly and gently said, no, her work must continue in getting, you know, girls and children to Israeli hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I have to say my reaction was, you know, go figure. Mm. You know, the, 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 the reality check of just taking, stepping back and looking at the frame of, of as post eight October uh, um, really concerned me, and I wondered to what extent this this poses a threat to Israeli society. Yeah, there are signs that the ideology has made some headway in certain institutions, like Tel Aviv University and the like. I don't think that these lefty Israelis who are living in you know a kibbutz on the southern border are woke per se they, they, i mean i'm sure that they have some notion of oppressive and oppressor that's been around a lot longer than the sort of modern version of woke ideology i mean you know again i mean we've certain segments of israeli society has always been conditioned by marxist thought right i mean marxism was was a, a powerful force in the early state of israel so that's that that lingers in the popular imagination of Israelis and Israelis are Jews. And there's a segment of us that is in innocently compassionate and um, sometimes uh, 
ignorant of the consequences that we might face if that compassion is not directed in the right way. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, I wouldn't call that woke. I think that there are cer- around certain, certainly some of the gender issues and gender identity issues. You see this in, you know, in, in, in segments of Tel Aviv, you can, you see, you know, gender neutral bathrooms in certain gender, uh, Tel Aviv municipality uh, buildings. And, you know, Israelis travel the world and they, they end up in the United States and they're influenced by these larger ideological trends. And, um, you know, um, but, but I don't think, um, I don't think Israeli society is nearly as susceptible to this. Look, in, in a way, uh, some of the other Anglo speaking countries are not as susceptible or other European societies. The French are working hard to keep wokeism at bay in, in France. It's, it's not as popular in Germany. Um, it mm. does have some hold in the UK. It does have some hold in New Zealand and Australia. Um, it, it has a lot of hold in Canada um, because oh. in Canada, there's no counterbalancing political force to keep it uh, at bay. So it ends up spreading like wildfire. And the Canadian Jews who are more independent minded than American Jews are, they're less tied at the hip with the Canadian left than Americans are with the American left. Um, they're, they're in a really bad spot because they don't have the political might to actually stop it from, you know, sort of engulfing their, their institutions. Mm. There have been a lot of uh, memes, shall we say, about the Canadian uh, propensity to welcome the the poor and the disgruntled of the world and what it, what it is likely to do to them. Can I just ask you this? The, do you see that nexus between radical Islam and um, the progressive Western left as as odd, or is there is there a natural actually somewhere there a natural nexus? Yeah, it's, it's probably both odd and at the same time natural. I mean, look, the red green alliance, as we call it, the alliance between radical Islam and progressive politics, post colonial politics has been around a long time. It was certainly caught on in Europe. It's newer to the American scene, by the way. It's always been around, but it's not, not to the degree that it has today. And, and what you have is you have groups, Islamist groups, like in the United States, the Council of American Islamic Relations. Um, these are deeply conservative groups. Um, besides their antipathy toward Israel and to the West, these are people who, um, who have extremely conservative views on things like homosexuality. Um, mm-hmm. yet they've managed to insinuate themselves into progressive politics. And that's because of the binary nature of progressive politics, woke politics in the United States and in the West today. When, when you split up the world neatly into oppressed and oppressors and you deem certain groups automatically part of the oppressed by virtue of their perceived power or whatever, and everybody else is part of the oppressor class, it's, um, that means that the, the oppressed really are, are not, have no agency. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're at the mercy of the oppressor at all times. And mm-hmm. so you can't blame them then from coming in and being angry about being in a quote unquote open air prison in Gaza and then going and slaughtering and raping and beheading people in Israel. They're, they're excused for it. Of course, they've been, occupied they've they've been colonized they've been displaced what do you think it's going to be like and there are very explicit examples of this you know where people are saying what did you think this was going to look like a a, an academic paper you know idiots of course they're going to go when when the oppressed finally liberate themselves or have an opportunity to liberate themselves they're going to take it out on their their oppressors what did you think it was going to be like are we going to expect them to be that morally pure so that's again that's the the lens through which they're they're seeing all this and and they can excuse almost anything done by mm. by not almost anything anything clearly um done by 
the uh, by the Hamas, Hamas and other terrorist organizations because they're doing it on behalf of the oppressed, and that's what happens when people are oppressed. So uh, yeah, so the ideological the ideological underpinnings of the red green alliance are are obvious to see and you can see how that ideology would lead you to defend the indefensible which is exactly what's happened this is, uh, somebody put the idea in a, and it struck me it had merit that effectively in the word it's victimhood it's 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 the ideology of the left and it's a lot of what the, the foundations of is, of islam reflect is that is that sense of victimhood which must be overcome by by violence or can you know violence is certainly a measure to to be considered yeah i'd only i'd only add some nuance to it i think hmm. islamist ideology which is a which obviously occupies a large swath of the muslim world it's not um it's it's not a marginal phenomenon but it's not it doesn't dominate all muslims and all Muslim countries in the, equally. So Islamist ideology really is an ideology that's meant to sort of recoup the uh, honor of, mm. of Muslims who have failed to live up to their own commitments to Allah and, you know, and, um, and, um, and, and that, that ideology itself, it's a political ideology, really about honor and shame and victimization and sees itself as being the victim of the West and now has to be more true to Allah and true to its uh, to their original text of Islam if it's going to be able to reinstate the the grandeur of Islam in the world. Um, I think that's what's motivating this and that's where sort of Muslim anti-Semitism grows out of as well. Um, David, I, I think I'm going to need to do another interview, but before closing, could I just briefly ask you generally, because the impression one has from America is that South Africa's foray to the uh, International Court of Justice is not looked on well. Um, we think it's one of the going to be one of the nails in the coffin of the uh, South African the trade relationships between America and South Africa. Uh, am I accurately understanding that? Yeah, I don't know exactly how the U.S. trade will be affected by it. It wouldn't surprise me if there are efforts to, you know, to isolate South Africa economically through this, whether they'll succeed or not. I don't know. Obviously, it's it's heartbreaking to watch South Africa today take such an aggressive and ugly stance toward Israel and accuse it of genocide before The Hague. Um, it's good to see that the United States and Germany, especially Germany, stand firm against these uh, charges. And um, and I think it will be very hard for them to, quote unquote, prove their case that this is anything approaching to genocide. I think it's a it's a spectacle. And um, and I think it's an embarrassment to the country. You know why? Uh, you know, South Africa, as you well know better than I, that has a lot of its own internal problems. This is an effort to deflect uh, from those internal problems, I imagine. And um, and it's a really uh, disgraceful that the country has gone in that direction. I feel for you, honestly. I feel for my South African Jewish friends who, um, you know, who always feel a bit nervous. And I know this. I been to South Africa many times. Um, I have relationships in South Africa. I, you know, they've always, even in the best of days, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable place in many ways. Maybe it's always been an uncomfortable place, but in different ways, but it's, it's an uncomfortable place, um, for, for Jews. And maybe there's always a sense of being on borrowed time. And, um, and this can't help. This can't help. Um, so, um, I, 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 you know, 
I, I know you're taking the, the, the challenge seriously. And, um, if there's anything American Jews, um, can do to support you in that, I think it would be a good time for South African Jewish leaders and the like to be in active communication with both with Israel and American Jewry about its own security and needs. Mm. Thank no, I, th- I think I think that's a point well made, and particularly on uh, on a, st- a station like Chai, um, if you ever need to do a reverse interview on why uh, we're in the situation, um, I'm very happy to oblige. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I think one can draw some 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 sort of comfort from is the fact that it's very much linked to the government, and if. God willing, we have a change in government in our elections this year. Um, we could see a complete reversion of foreign policy um, because, as I say, the South Africans are conservative and they are Christian. And Yeah, and I've seen makes- some very powerful South African Christian voices speak out against what its government's doing. I know there have been some protests. I know those are those are black Christian voices. I mean, I was listening to them and watching them with admiration. So, I mean, obviously you want to, you want to, um, marshal all your allies. And it's, um, I know that's being done. There's been some very important work there. And, um, um, I would love to do a reverse interview, Sarah. So we'll, we're going to have you on and talk about why South Africa is in the situation and what we can learn from it too. David, thank you very much. Um, I doubt this will be the last uh, occasion for our. Chatting about this, uh, the, the subjects are probably infinite. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be with you.